Hey, Safia, have you been watching the Women's World Cup? I have. I've been keeping up more with the scores than watching every single game just because they're playing all the way over in Australia and New Zealand. So the time difference is, yeah. is kind of tough. But I actually did watch the USA-Netherlands game last oh, week. Oh, I watched that too. Yeah, it was quite the, the nail-biter. Yeah, sure. and that's Safia Ethmed. She's a producer for this show. And I wanted to have her on for this week's episode because Safia is a football, or as it's known here in the U.S., a soccer super fan. I've been playing ever since I was a little kid, so probably like two-ish decades now. Um, Barcelona is my favorite soccer team, and Messi is by far my favorite player. And because she's such a fan of football, she's also had her eye on a new team that's starting up in the National Women's Soccer League, or NWSL for short. So that's the league where a lot of the big American names like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe play when they're not playing for the U.S. women's national team. So, Safia, what's the deal with this new team and why are you so interested in it? So this new team, it's called Bay Football Club or Bay FC, and it's based in the San Francisco Bay Area, hence the name. And I've been really interested in it because it's the first pro women's team there in a while. There were actually two previous teams in this area before in previous leagues, but they both failed after just a couple seasons. Oh, why? They weren't able to energize the audience and the interest that is now here in women's soccer, right? There's a lot of interest in women's sports now, but when these teams were trying to get off the ground, they weren't getting the media attention they needed and they really couldn't build a big fan base and they ran out of funding. So who's behind this new team? So this club's founders are four retired women's pro players. Um, Some of their names might sound familiar. A couple of them have won Olympic gold. Others have won the World Cup. Um, Their names are Leslie Osborne, Brandi Chastain, Danielle Slayton, and Allie Wagner. And the four of them ended up taking a new approach to building this team. They didn't want to end up like the last two teams that failed. So they're actually doing something that's never really been done in U.S. pro sports before. So institutional investors are actually the majority owners of the team. And I had the chance to talk with Ali Wagner, who's one of the co-founders, about this whole process and their investment decision. And here's what she told me. A massive respect to the two clubs that came before us, but it was a very different investment proposition. A lot of the owners, they love women's sports and they're doing it for the right reasons, but it wasn't anything that they were investing in as a business proposition, as something that was going to see ROI. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, you know, um, running a sports team in any professional league is getting more and more expensive. And one place that a team can turn to to find a lot of cash is private capital, right? And that's actually very common for teams in Europe. A lot of them are majority owned by, by institutional investors and they make decisions for the club and they help the clubs run. But this model is essentially untested in the U.S. Pro sports teams here have typically been owned by billionaires or super wealthy sports families. But regardless, Ali's very confident that this team is going to be more successful given the way they set it up. I think as you think about private equity as as a lead investor compared to, you know, what we've historically seen in the U.S. landscape, by the way, not what you see in the global landscape. Private equity is very much a big player in, in all of these clubs abroad. And I think it was just a matter of time before we flip that script here in the United States. And, and, you know, maybe we're first in, but we won't be the last. I 
I'm Michaela Chindera from the Financial Times. Professional sports is a big business that's getting even bigger. Today on Behind the Money, we're going to look at how private capital could reshape professional sports in the United States. So, Sophia, you spoke with Ali Wagner, who's the co-founder of this team, BayFC. So where'd this idea come from in the first place? So Ali actually told me that a few years ago, one of her former teammates, Leslie Osborne, brought this idea to her of building a soccer team in the Bay after she had seen Angel City FC launch in Los Angeles. I think this is a, a time period that everyone will be familiar with. When we first started on this endeavor, it was actually 2020. So COVID had actually just splashed around the world, if for lack of a better term. And so we were actually home and had a lot of time on our hands. And we had just seen Angel City do their launch. So a group of us led by Leslie Osborne got together, uh, seeing what they had really pulled off in LA and coalesced the troops and around the idea of, we absolutely need to have an NWSL team here in the Bay Area. This is one of the hotbeds of women's football globally. And there's a ton of support here. This is one of the perfect communities for supporting the sport. And what Allie noticed wasn't just in her head. There are numbers to back up the fact that women's soccer has pretty high demand. When you consider that the top two NWSL teams over the past few years in average attendance is over 20,000 fans, that's actually greater than the average attendance for NBA, greater than the average attendance for NHL. Just the NWSL this year, halfway through the season, up 48% in average attendance. That's up 20% in, in TV viewership. I think their streaming numbers are up something like 50% on Paramount+. Plus. So the appetite is there, the demand is there, but we haven't actually matched that yet with the economic reality or, or the investment dollars flowing into the space. So Ali's hoping that this team, BayFC, can be as big as any global men's teams. Whether it be the New York Yankees, whether it be Real Madrid, Barcelona, different sports, um, Everyone you can think of that is a top sport brand is a man's brand. And we want to change the narrative on that and show what's possible in women's sports and that there's no reason that we can't have a women's sports brand be as iconic as some of those men's brands. And hopefully with that to forever shift the landscape of of what it looks like in sports. So clearly there's a ton of passion there to develop this team. Um, But you mentioned that the other two teams have failed in this area because of a lack of funding. So how much funding does a team like this need to get off the ground? Yeah, it's definitely not cheap to enter the NWSL or to add a team to the NWSL. There's actually, for the Bay specifically, there was an expansion fee that had to be paid to the league that was $53 million. And then on top of that, building a soccer team is going to be expensive, right? You've got to hire players and pay coaches. Um, You've got to build a stadium and training facilities, design jerseys and logos and do marketing. So you're looking at like tens of millions of dollars, if not more. Yeah. So how'd that search go for them to actually find that funding? Yes, they went through funding rounds, kind of similar to how tech startups do. And that's probably not that surprising given they're from the Bay. Silicon Valley's right there. So they went through these funding rounds and Ali says the first few went pretty well. And they got a few angel investors to support their team and their vision. But they were still looking for a lead investor because the NWSL essentially requires 
every club to have one lead investor that has at least a 30% stake. But they'd gone through all these funding rounds and they just hadn't found the investor that seemed like the right fit yet. As you can imagine, there's just a limited pool of, of people that would match that requirement and also had the capital to back up what they were about to invest in. The challenges around funding pro teams is something I wanted to learn more about. I was curious how what's happening with the NWSL fits into what's happening in the broader pro sports ecosystem here in the U.S. And I actually asked our colleague Sarah Germano, who's the FT's U.S. sports business correspondent, about this. I think maybe to start off, we have to understand that if you own a professional sports team in the U.S., you don't just own a club. You own one fraction of the NFL. You own one thirtieth of the NBA. It's more than just the team itself. Like you are actually taking a piece of this wider pie. And for that reason, historically, a lot of the ownership of U.S. sports teams have been these kind of dynastic, wealthy families. But what's happened basically is that in the latter half of the 20th century and, you know, the beginning of the 21st century, the franchise valuations of all these clubs have gotten so much richer because, you know, media deals have paid so much more to broadcast their games. Ticket revenues have increased. Overall, the pie of wealth has gotten so much larger. It costs so much money to own these teams. And the number of people, the number of wealthy families that there are to buy into pro sports at like high valuations is getting smaller and smaller. And so how does that compare this kind of owning a piece of the pie structure compare to sports team ownership in other countries around the world? Specifically, um, I'm thinking of Europe, the major football clubs there. It's quite different. So Europe has been a little bit more progressive in terms of who's permitted to own a football club, a soccer club. We see private equity firms taking control of clubs. You know, over the past 20 years or so, we also see sovereign wealth funds. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates have all taken control of some of the biggest and most prestigious football clubs in Europe, like Man City, like Newcastle, like PSG. So various private capital groups have been expanding into European pro sports for a couple of decades now. But what about in the U.S.? What happened was in 2019, even before the pandemic, Major League Baseball was seeing this increase in, in valuations and individuals who had minority shares in these teams couldn't afford to sell their stakes if they wanted liquidity. Like if you had put in like a million dollars to take a small, small stake of a club decades ago, you couldn't find someone to now pay like tens of millions to buy you out. So they changed the rules to say, we're going to allow institutional investors to take small, what they call limited partnership stakes in teams. We're becoming the first U.S. league to do this. And they kind of changed the blueprint. Okay, so institutional investors have been able to hold small stakes in teams within the MLB since 2019. But they've never been the majority owners until this new women's pro soccer team, Bay FC, entered the picture. So what's the motivation here for private capital to do this here and now? It's actually pretty simple. It's that they are looking at them for the first time as assets. We tend to think of sports as like the toy box of life. They're entertainment. They're fun. But the truth is that they've become these incredibly attractive 
investments. We even saw valuations of some of these teams progress through the pandemic. You know, when things started shutting down, there was a lot of concern about how teams and leagues would fare without ticket sales, without being able to, like, put their matches on on television. But a lot of teams have made it through relatively intact. We're not seeing, like, the collapse of any um, any sports teams here. And that has solidified this view that pro sports are kind of a almost recession-proof investment opportunity. Why do you think that the NWSL, or women's soccer specifically, is such an attractive investment? Something you hear talked about a lot in women's sports, particularly in the U.S., is that in the recent past, um, people would invest in women's sports because they thought it was the right thing to do. It made them look more progressive. It made them look more open-minded or perhaps opportunistic in the best sense of the word. What you hear a lot more now, and we've heard this both from the NWSL commissioner and from the commissioner of the WNBA, the Women's Professional Basketball League, is that women's sports are are making sense as a financial investment as well. The returns on watching women's sports are growing faster in some cases than even the men's sports. What would you say, I guess, are kind of like the pros and cons of private capital firms weaving their way more into team ownership? So the pros would definitely be, you know, much more liquidity for the team itself. That's more money that's coming into the club. It allows them, you know, greater leeway in in how they grow their team, appreciate the overall value of the franchise. But the big question by private capital coming into sports is traditionally private equity firms have bought and held assets for a fixed term and tried to make a profit on them. And that's basically anathema to pro sports, which have shepherded these teams and clubs and owned them as long-term investments. You're basically taking like the shortest term investment philosophy and bringing it into an asset class that has traditionally held for long, long periods of time. And that's a clash. That's not something that we've really ever seen before. You know, these firms basically operate by buying things up, flipping them around and turning a profit. Like at some point, won't one of them want to do this? And what will the effects be for the overall ecosystem? It's a big mystery. So, Sefia, we know Allie Wagner was still looking for a lead investor when we heard about her last. Mm -hmm. How'd she find one? So she'd actually been looking for a lead investor for quite a while. Um, And like I said, the right match just... They hadn't found it yet. And then last year, Ali actually came across someone who seemed pretty promising. And he's a man named Alan Waxman. He's actually the CEO and co-founder of the investment firm Sixth Street Partners. And Sixth Street isn't particularly new to investing in sports. It has minority stakes in a bunch of different teams, but they've never been the lead investor of a sports team. And like Sarah said, U.S. sports teams have always just been owned by, you know, a small group of of wealthy individuals and families. So Sixth Street getting involved would be a pretty big deal because, again, private capital never involved in this space in the U.S. So Allie basically had to convince Alan Waxman to take a chance on this new type of investment. How'd that go? Yeah, so she told me that she actually went to his house and um, she had a whole presentation prepared to pitch this team to him. And she thought it was going to be like a super formal meeting, but then it ended up being very casual. He liked the vision. He loved the idea. You know, he just needed more data on everything that we were parlaying. 
And so they went back and they did their homework. And that's when they fully recognized and supported the idea that this is an undervalued asset. And there's massive opportunity here. It basically just clicked for the two of them that this was going to be the right partnership. And so Sixth Street, after doing that homework that Ali was saying, they ended up committing $125 million as the lead investor. So that covered the expansion team fee, but also gave Bay FC quite a bit of money to, to, to get off the ground. Yeah. Wow. So how long is Sixth Street planning to be this lead investor on this team? As we heard from Sarah, you know, if there's a short-term investment philosophy, that sort of clashes with what's typically done with U.S. sports teams. Does Bay FC have any idea of the timeline? Yeah, yeah. So Sixth Street investment in Bay FC isn't like your traditional private equity approach where, you know, they typically buy a company, they restructure it, make it efficient and then sell it off. And it, it happens usually very fast. But this is actually going to be more of a long term investment. So Sixth Street is going to be the lead investor and majority owner for at least a decade. And Ali said she feels pretty good about that setup. That gives me great comfort because they know we know this isn't going to be something they're going to flip the way that you think private equity typically does. This is a long-term investment play. And knowing that we have that stability alongside them is a massive advantage. While I understand people might view it as risky, in this situation, it's actually quite comforting. So now you might be thinking, Bay FC has the hard part figured out. They've gotten off the ground with all this hefty funding from different sources and a big 10-year investment from majority owner Sixth Street. Um, but Safia, is that really the case? Is the hard part over? Well, that may have sounded like the hard part, but Ali doesn't feel that way. I think the toughest part, quite honestly, is yet to come. I really do. I think we're ex- we're living it right now, which is standing up a company in a very short timeline. So by the time we got the bid, I think it was April of this year, we're going to have to turn around and stand up a company within 11 months, basically, because our team will kick off in March of 24. So that is a condensed time frame to do things and to do them well. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, I'll definitely be curious to see just how it turns out in 2024. Yeah, yeah, same. I'm excited to start watching the games just because as the league's expanding, it's, it's a lot more fun to watch. There's more competition. And I actually asked Allie how she's going to be feeling when her team finally hits the field. I want you to picture it's next year. It's the first game of the season for Bay FC in their new stadium. Yes. What do you think you'll be feeling at that moment? I am pretty sure I will be crying. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'll be very emotional. I, I know we're gonna be there when the the sleepless nights, you know, the the highs, the lows, all of that is gonna come flooding back. Yeah, and I'm sure that'll be even more surreal given that you you used to play. So yeah. it's not like when you play soccer and you're watching soccer, it's different from when you're just watching it, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. Because you really know what it it means to be on that field. Yes. Yeah. Everything will come full circle. I think in that moment. Um, knowing that yeah. we created an incredible environment for athletes to go be celebrated. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, from a business perspective, we're hopefully changing the narrative of what it's like to invest in, in women's sports. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, there's still time for you to submit your business and finance questions to our show. 
We've already received some really interesting ones, ranging from how the Federal Reserve works to the fallout from the global financial crisis. So keep them coming. There's details on how to get in touch with us in our show notes. Also, if you want to read more from the FT on what we talked about during this week's episode, the articles linked in our show notes are free to read right now. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Sam Agini. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.